If you've got a Bible with you and you want to open it up to Luke chapter 7, I said this last week, but kind of big picture, Luke 6 was a sermon that Luke captured um, of Jesus describing who are his people and who aren't, and how can you tell the difference between who is who. And then in Luke 7, Luke records four interactions that Jesus has with uh, various people, sometimes an individual, sometimes with a group of people. And we did the first two of those last week in verses 1 through 17 of Luke chapter 7. Both of those involved um, a person who was hoping uh, that Jesus could heal. In fact, one that asks for that to happen, and one who is mourning and doesn't ask, but Jesus raises that widow's son. There are two more accounts in Luke 7 of Luke interacting with a person. This morning in verses 18 to 35 uh, of Jesus interacting with a person, Jesus is going to interact with John the Baptist, but he's going to do so through some intermediaries and he's going to do so in the presence of a crowd. And so it's really an interaction that takes place between John the Baptist and Jesus, but there's some other stuff that happens in the middle of it. And it all circles around this topic of doubt. Um, John the Baptist, we'll, we'll get to this in just a second, but he's in prison. He's got a question about Jesus, and that question manifests itself in a little bit of doubt about who Jesus is and what that means for John the Baptist in his current circumstances. Doubt is something that I think most of us are familiar with. If you've walked with Jesus for any period of time, you go through seasons, and sometimes there are seasons where you've, you're looking at what's happening around you, and you say, I, I think I know this to be true about Jesus, but what about what I'm experiencing? That's something that's pretty universally understood by anyone who walks with Christ for any amount of time. I want to read something that an individual within our congregation wrote in the middle of their own season of doubt. It lasted a couple of years. And as they're talking about what their doubt feels like, they relate it to a changing of seasons, most notably from summer and it's warmth to winter and it's darkness and cold. This is what they said. Sometimes it's summer and it feels like your light, that would be God's light, is warming every part of me. It's obvious where the sun is. I see it. I feel it. It's close. In those seasons, scripture comes alive as your very words. Your nearness brings joy and there's no question where you are. But then it's as though the days start getting shorter and the temperature starts to drop. A chill comes along the edges of the days and the winds pick up. The questions begin to come. Why do I feel so far from you? When I open scripture, why does it not move my heart like it once did? Why do I have these doubts? What am I doing wrong? And then comes the first snow. You don't want to leave the house. The air hurts your skin. You look up at the sun and it looks just like it did in the summer, but it no longer brings the warmth that it used to. A lot of days you can't see the sun through the thick clouds. When the sun is out, I can at least assent to its existence. But on that second week of snow and single-digit temperatures, despair starts to set in. Was everything I felt in the summer just a lie? God, are you even there? What is the point of all of this? Where has your warmth gone? When you lose the warmth of what the sun brought for so long, it's easy to begin to assume that God was either never there or he left. Because if he was near, you wouldn't feel this way. There's no reason that it should be this cold if the sun is still right there. At these moments, you think wistfully about how the summer felt, how good the sun felt on your skin, and how its presence felt like it warmed you to your very insides. And you hold on to these moments because even on your darkest, coldest nights of doubt, 
the warmth of what God has done in the past ought to be enough to sustain me. Doubt. Seasons where it feels like God is distant, where things have gone cold, where there's no joy in light, but instead you see darkness and you start to ask questions. We're going to see that in this passage. I said something early on in this series that I want to reiterate because it's important as we think about John the Baptist in this particular interaction. And that's that in the gospel accounts, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when the gospel authors give us these accounts of Jesus interacting with people, they do so not to teach us something about the other figure. They do so to teach us something about Jesus, particularly when these accounts give us multiple interactions between Jesus and the same person. In this case, John the Baptist. But there are, you get recurring interactions with the disciples, recurring interactions with the Pharisees, recurring interactions with the crowds that surround Jesus. Typically, in those interactions, while we're learning something about Jesus, we're to identify ourselves with the other figure. We're more like the crowd than we are like Jesus. We're more, at times, like the Pharisees than we are like Jesus. We're more like John the Baptist here than we are like Jesus. And when we read these accounts and we position ourselves correctly, we see how it is that Jesus interacts with his people in various seasons of life. Now, I'm not trying to oversell the passage or this particular sermon, but what we're going to see from Jesus in this interaction with and in his relationship with John the Baptist here has the ability to be utterly life-changing and soul-stabilizing for some people this morning. We have to be willing to look at it closely. We've got to be willing to slow down, think hard about the passage and the circumstances that surround it, and to see ourselves in it. So if you've got your Bible open, I'm going to start reading in Luke chapter 7, verse 18, and I'm going to read down through verse 35. It says this, Then John's disciples told him about all these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord, asking, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. After John's messengers left, he, that's Jesus, began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who are splendidly dressed and live in luxury or in royal palaces, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. To what then should I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning and for your word. 
God, thank you that as we gather together as a church around the truth of the gospel, as we gather together around the cross, as we gather together around the truth of your word, God, thank you that you reveal yourself to us in such a way as to meet us wherever we are. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would take the truth of your word, help us to see Jesus clearly, help us to see the beauty of the gospel clearly, help us to see how it is that Jesus interacts with his people even when they doubt. God, would you help us to see that clearly and would you meet us in those places? God, I pray that we'd be encouraged. God, I pray that we would have our souls, which may feel shaky or insecure. God, I pray that we would have them stabilized and that we would find security in the truth of who Jesus is, his compassion and his kindness toward us and what that means for those who are his people. God, help us to see the gospel clearly this morning. Help us to see Christ and exalt him fully this morning, we pray in his matchless name. Amen. Here's the landing spot this morning. And we're gonna come to this just over and over and over again. And so this is both the main point and it's the takeaway. When you find yourself doubting Jesus, go to Jesus. That reality is so on the surface of this passage that it can be easy to miss. And it's right on the surface of this passage, but you've gotta know a little bit about like the full arc of John's presence in the Gospel of Luke and really in the gospel account in general. So I wanna give that to you really briefly. In Luke chapter one, verses 13 to 17, an angel appears to Zechariah, that's John's father. He's in the temple doing his job as a priest. An angel appears to him and says that he and Elizabeth, her and her old age, are going to have a child. They're gonna name him John. They're told that he's gonna be great in the sight of the Lord, that he will turn many people from the house of Israel toward the Lord, that he'll be a prophet in the spirit and in the tenor of Elijah. They're told that he'll give understanding to the disobedient, that he's gonna go before the Lord to prepare for the Lord a people for himself. Then a little bit later in chapter one, in verse 44, Mary has been told that she's gonna have a son, Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. And she's told that she can go to her relative, Elizabeth, who's also pregnant, and receive confirmation of what an angel has just said to her. So Mary goes, and when she arrives at Elizabeth's house, Jesus in Mary's womb, Elizabeth in, or John in Elizabeth's womb, John leaps in Elizabeth's womb in the presence of Jesus. In chapter three, Luke gives us an identification of John the Baptist. And in verses three through six, he quotes something from Isaiah chapter 40 that tells us that John is gonna be this voice that's calling out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, making paths straight, bringing mountains down and valleys up so that this highway, so to speak, that the Savior, the Messiah is gonna come on would be flat and straight, that John's going before him and he's gonna prepare for the Lord a people who are ready for salvation. Then a little bit later in chapter three, verses 15 to 17, John the Baptist actually identifies Jesus and says that there's someone who's coming who's greater than I am, whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. And he says that that person, the Messiah, Jesus, is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire, not just with water. He says that that person, Jesus, has the winnowing fork in his hand, and he is going to separate wheat from chaff. And then in verses 18 to 22 of chapter three, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and tucked right into the middle of that, we're told that John is thrown into prison. So by the time you get to chapter seven, you're supposed to remember that this guy, John the Baptist, isn't out in the wilderness doing his ministry anymore. He's also not at home living some cushy lifestyle because he fulfilled the thing that he was supposed to do. No, he's languishing in prison 
for having spoken out against the powers that be at the time. And then we're told in Luke 9, verse 9, that John the Baptist is dead. It's Matthew 14, verses 1 to 12, that give us the whole story of that, that he was actually beheaded. That's the whole story that we get of John. And when the gospel writers give us an account of another figure, they do so to teach us something about Jesus. And we've learned so much about Jesus through John the Baptist already at this point. Because of John the Baptist, we've learned that the Savior is coming, that that person is Jesus, that Jesus would be greater than a prophet, he would be something more than that, that he would come and baptize people into something that's totally different than the Old Testament sort of cleansings and washings that happened, that baptism was an Old Testament um, ritual for. We're told that salvation is coming with Jesus, and now John the Baptist is going to show us how Jesus deals with his people when they doubt. And the picture is absolutely incredible. Note that I say how Jesus deals with his people when they doubt, not if they doubt. There is no lifelong journey with Jesus that does not involve moments of questioning, moments of wondering, moments of doubting. Now, doubt isn't skepticism. I want to like lay some doubt groundwork here so that we can really see what we're dealing with. The first thing I want to set like, against one another is doubt versus skepticism, because skepticism is a little bit of the spirit of our current age. Skepticism is a posture that a person takes that can be aggressive and arrogant at times. Skepticism says, I'm coming at this topic combatively. Skepticism says, I know And now you need to prove to me either something different or I will prove to you what I knew to be true all along. We can be skeptics about particular topics and all of us probably have things that we're a little bit skeptical about. But in our current world, in our current society, at our current time, it's almost like a badge of honor to just be skeptical in general toward basically everything. That you would set yourself in a posture against it. Doubt is something different entirely. Doubt is more like a question than it is a posture. Doubt is inquisitive. It's humble rather than arrogant. Doubt says, help me understand. I've got a question I don't know the answer to. Maybe you know the answer. Or maybe there's an answer out there and I'm humble and I'm willing to learn and to be taught. Doubt isn't a virtue. It's not something that we hold up as though if you're someone who regularly has doubt, you're therefore better than those who don't have doubt. That's not the case. But it's also true that doubt isn't something that we need to fear. Doubt's not something to be afraid of. I believe firmly that held up to the most rigorous questioning, even aggressive, skeptical questioning, I believe very firmly that the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus, the truth of God, the truth of his word will always prove itself, whether those questions come from doubt or they come from skepticism. Now, there are different types of doubt, or at least different ways that we end up in places of doubt. This list is not perfect. It's not exhaustive. I'm just going to give you three of these, and they overlap at times, so the categories aren't necessarily completely clean. But some doubt is theological. Those are questions that we have about who God is. And sometimes that sort of theological doubt is actually what leads us toward the truth of the gospel in the first place. There's something that happens in life. We start asking questions about God. Is there a God? And if there is a God, what is he like? 
And oftentimes, those are the very questions that God uses to draw a person to faith for the very first time. But those questions often will linger with us even as we walk with Jesus. Knowing who God is is a question that requires a lifelong pursuit. And so we ask these theological questions all throughout our relationship with Jesus. What does it mean that God is sovereign, that he's all-powerful, all-knowing? What's it mean that he's ever-present? What does it mean exactly that he's kind and merciful and gracious and loving and good? What's it mean that he's wise? What's it mean that he's holy and righteous and that he's just? The beauty of who God is is that if you want answers to all of that, go to him. And he's written you an entire book to tell you about himself. So you've got theological questions about who God is, go to him. He's given you his word and revealed for you everything that you could ever need in order to know him and be saved. You might need books that explain God's word. But if you want to know who God is, don't lean primarily on what other people have to say about who God is. God wrote a whole book for you. Go to him. Let him tell you. Sometimes we come to doubt and it comes from more of an existential place. That just means that sometimes we arrive at our doubt because we have an understanding of who God is. And then we see the world and the reality around us and it causes us to ask some of the big questions about life. Like I have some understanding of who God is, but I'm looking at the world and its brokenness and everything that I see around me. And I'm trying to figure out that if God is good and loving, why does suffering still exist? I'm trying to figure out why, if God is loving, why does hell exist? If God is good and all wise, why is it that Jesus came once and we're waiting this long period of time for him to come again? Or why is it that sin came into the world and God didn't just send Jesus right then? Why is that? The answers to those sorts of doubts are buried deep in the heart of God and in the mystery of his will. They're buried deep in his heart and his providential unfolding of history to bring about that will. And oftentimes when we find ourselves facing those kind of large existential doubt kinds of questions, we turn to like philosophy. And we say, well, there are some people who have spent a long time thinking a lot about life. Maybe they have the answer. And there's nothing you know, essentially wrong with philosophy. It has plenty of good things to tell us, but it can't ultimately tell us the deep mysteries of God and his will and his providence. But God has told us what we need to know about those things and we can go to his word. Sometimes when we get those real big, deep existential questions, we think what I really need to do is look harder within myself. As if if you just look far enough down into yourself, you're gonna discover the deep mysteries of God and his will and his providence. Now it's important that we take the truth of God's word and we do some intense and deep examining in our lives all the time, but we're never going to find the answers to our deepest existential questions within ourselves. We're broken. We don't have perfect knowledge, but God's given us his word, and so we can go to that. The kind of doubt that I think we find ourselves in most recently as we're walking with Jesus is not necessarily theological, not necessarily existential, though that comes and goes. What I think we find most often is circumstantial doubt. That's John's kind of doubt. Circumstantial doubt is the kind of doubt that every single follower of Jesus experiences at one point or another. You go to any person in this room or any person watching online, listening via the podcast, and they will likely be able to tell you about the dark night of the soul that led them to wonder and ponder and ask some questions and doubt some things about God. It might have come through illness. 
an unspeakable tragedy that takes a loved one from them. It might come from the loss of a child or seasons of depression or anxiety. Maybe it came about during a relational fallout or feelings of isolation. It could have come about because of marital challenges or spouse that was unfaithful or a spouse that just walked out one day. Maybe it came through the loss of a job or a season or a lifetime of poverty. Maybe it came about because there was a season of childlessness when they were longing for parenthood or a season of singleness when they were longing for marriage. Those types of seasons bring about the winter that the person was describing that I read at the start. Those kinds of seasons lead us not necessarily to like pointed questions. They lead us to these deep sort of feelings where our soul starts crying out in anguish. Like, God, why aren't you here? Why didn't you act? Why can't I feel you? Why don't you care? How long until this is over? Are you listening? Do you even listen? Are you who you said you are or not? Are you the one that I'm supposed to be looking for or should I look for someone else? Should I expect someone different to come and meet me in this place? I think any honest conversation with any follower of Jesus would say that we've felt those things before. We've asked those questions. We've walked through those seasons. And let this be an encouragement to you this morning. Doubt does not equal disbelief. We're gonna see that in John the Baptist here in just a moment. In fact, you can see that in multiple places in the gospel. Doubt isn't disbelief. Doubt is much more like a parent's plea in Mark chapter nine. If you're a note taker, you can jot that down. But the story is that a man has a son who's possessed by a demon. That demon has made the son unable to speak. But there are moments where the demon throws the son into these seizures, tosses him on the ground. He goes rigid and he can't move. He's foaming in his mouth. He's grinding his teeth. And sometimes those seizures have actually landed the boy in a body of water of some sort or into a fire even. And imagine the anguish of that as a parent. So this parent has heard about this Jesus guy who could maybe liberate his son from the oppression of this demon. And so the man takes his son and they go to Jesus. And the man says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Remember the question we asked last week, When you think about Jesus, like, do you really know who it is that you're dealing with? Jesus literally asks that question in response. He says, if I can do anything, like that's the tone. Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If I can do anything, like I can do some stuff. And the man cries out one of the most known phrases in all of the gospels. I believe, help my unbelief. That's circumstantial doubt. Jesus cast the demon out of the boy. It's that kind of doubt that our circumstances can toss us into. I believe, help my unbelief. It's that kind of doubt that John finds himself facing in prison. You don't disbelieve in the moment. You haven't lost faith, but you have some questions and you're groping around in the dark for answers. Legan Duncan describes John the Baptist this way. He says, his personal difficulties started to dominate his perspective. He was in so much distress, it seems he could no longer see what God was doing, either in his own life or in the world at large. Winter had settled in, and John had questions. 
but doubt is not disbelief. And that means we don't need to fear our doubt. The Bible is full of faithful men and faithful women who go through these seasons. In fact, if you find yourself in some circumstantial doubt and you feel like you need to be reminded that you aren't alone and you're not the first person to be in that place, my encouragement to you would be open the book of Psalms. Many of the Psalms, the author is crying out, how long, Lord? Have you forgotten me? Are you paying attention? Are you listening? Do you hear me? And in those moments, you get this heart of doubt that collides with the very heart of God and you get these beautiful poetic expressions of what it looks like when the people of God in their doubt move toward God and God moves toward them. And you get the poetic kind of lyrical picture of that in Psalms that is the narrative picture that we have here with John the Baptist. He's sitting in prison. He knows who Jesus is, but his circumstances have made it so that he's got some questions. And look at what his first instinct is. He's had these disciples that are coming to him from time to time, and they're telling them about the things that Jesus is doing. That's verse 18. So in the middle of this doubt, he actually summons two of those disciples to come to him, and he says... I'm going to Jesus because I've got questions. Now, mind you, John can't go himself. He's in prison. So he's going to send these two to go on his behalf. And he's got one question. Are you the one that we've been looking for or should we expect someone else? And John's not going to anyone else for the answer. He's going straight to Jesus. John the Baptist's first instinct with that doubt is to turn to Jesus himself. I try hard to not get like overly intricate with sports illustrations and analogies up here because I know not everybody's a sports person. But I'm gonna risk that this morning. When you watch a football game, there are times where the offensive line starts to like hemorrhage in front of the quarterback. And these massive athletic men are rushing at the quarterback. This was the entirety of the Super Bowl, literally, start to finish for Patrick Mahomes. This is what was happening. Quarterbacks spend their entire careers learning how, when that breaks down in front of you, to have the instinct that your first step needs to actually be forward into the safety of the pocket and not backwards away. We sit in our cushy living rooms on our couches and the pocket starts to break down and we yell, step forward! Like it would be so easy. No, I'm telling you, if you were in that situation and those large men were running at you, you would run backward so fast and it wouldn't be fast enough and you would get squashed like a bug. That is what would happen. They spend their whole lives developing the instinct that when chaos starts to happen and things break down, they're going forward into the safety of the pocket, not running away. John the Baptist's instinct, when the circumstances have broken down around him and he's got doubt and he's got questions, is forward to Jesus, not away. That's the instinct we need to develop as followers of Jesus, that no matter what happens around us, whether it be circumstantial in our own lives, whether it be things happening in a society level, things happening at a global level, we go forward toward Jesus. And the time to develop that instinct is not in the middle of chaos. 
You don't learn that instinct when the chaos happens. You learn it in the relative peace of the rest of life so that when chaos happens, you've developed the instinct that goes to Jesus instead of going away. When you find yourself doubting Jesus, go to Jesus. So look what happens. John's got this circumstantial doubt. He's got some understandings of who the Savior would be, and those are probably clouded with his own sort of Jewish historical background thoughts that the Messiah would come in this military, political sort of way, and he's not seeing Jesus do that. He's getting reports. He's not seeing that happen. He's languishing in prison, and now he goes to Jesus. So he sends his disciples. They say, are you the one who is to come? Should we expect someone else? And Jesus doesn't say anything at first. Verse 21, at that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. When Jesus introduced himself as the Messiah at the synagogue in Nazareth, Luke 4, 16 to 30, he quoted something from Isaiah chapter 61. He said, here's how you're going to know that I'm the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When John's disciples arrive, maybe John heard that sermon, heard the report of it. Maybe he didn't. But when John's disciples arrive, Jesus does in their sight the things that he said he was going to do that would let everyone know that he was the Messiah. Those are the things that Jesus has been doing since the middle of Luke chapter 4 all the way up to this very account. And those are the things that they've heard or that John has heard being reported to him that Jesus has been doing, preaching, healing, releasing. And now here's Jesus and he does those things in the sight of John's disciples and he says to them, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. And then he sort of paraphrases Isaiah 61 again. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor are told the good news, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. But Jesus left one part out of that. He said nothing about release for the captives. John's a smart guy, knows his Old Testament. He's out in the wilderness quoting from Isaiah 40. He knows what's going on here with the Messiah Jesus leaves that part out as if to say, I am exactly the person that you should be looking for, but I'm not busting you out of prison. Jesus is, Jesus is patient to both display and to speak the reminder and the clarification, but also says to John, it doesn't mean your circumstances are necessarily going to change. And that is something that's so important for us to know in our doubt, that when we come and we go to Jesus with our doubt, we develop that instinct to move toward him rather than away. He's compassionate and kind and patient, and he will meet us in the middle of that doubt, but it does not mean the circumstances will always change. Sometimes it means that in the middle of those difficult circumstances, Jesus just meets you in that place and he wants to be with you there. Jesus' death is ultimately going to be the thing that sets the captives free. John's going to be dead before then. He's going to have been beheaded already before that happens. But make no mistake about it, he will also be free. The kindness of Jesus 
moves toward this man, John the Baptist, who's filled with circumstantial circumstantial doubt. John goes toward him. Jesus comes to John. But it doesn't end there because when that is over, we're told in verse 24, the messengers leave, those disciples leave, and then Jesus turns to the crowd. And he begins to talk to the crowd about John the Baptist. What'd you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What'd you, what'd you go out there to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? No, people who dress in splendid clothes, they're in palaces somewhere. So what did you go out to see? You went to see a prophet. Yes. I tell you, you saw more than a prophet. He quotes then from Malachi. See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare the way before you. That's who John the Baptist is. And then Jesus says this. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. I mean, think about the kindness. John's maybe never going to hear those words were said about him. His messengers have already left. They've gone back to John. But we're told later in verse 29 that there were people there in the crowd who had been baptized by John. They looked up to him. Maybe they followed him. They listened to him. They know who he is. And now that man has his faith shaken. He's got some doubt. And Jesus turns to those people and says, you went out to see a prophet and he was a great prophet who's preparing the way for the Lord and I am that Lord and no person ever born has been greater than John. <laughs> Unbelievably kind. Because doubt doesn't equal disbelief. brother or sister in Christ who's sitting here with your own doubt right now, your circumstances, have you feeling like it's the dead of winter and you can't see the light of God's goodness, I want to encourage you to just kind of sit with this for just a second and think about it with me. Position yourself there with John the Baptist going toward Jesus, Jesus coming toward you, but it doesn't stop there. Like extend this all the way out. I don't want to, I'm not trying to like press it too far, but this is the reality. You might limp all the way to your final breath in and out of seasons of doubt, in and out of circumstances that make you question the goodness of the Lord, in and out of circumstances that make you wonder if he is who he says he is, in and out of circumstances where you can or you can't see the Lord where he feels close or where he feels far and you're doing the best you can and you're walking with him and one day you die and you go and you stand before the Lord in judgment. And you're there before the judgment seat of God and the Father is there and Jesus is going to stand up to advocate on your behalf and think about what's going to happen. He's going to speak unbelievable kindness about you. You're going to be standing there before the Lord. And you're going to know all of your sin and all of your brokenness and the darkest things about your life and all of your doubts and all the times you had what you thought was weak faith and all the times you questioned who God is. And he is going to look at you and Jesus is going to stand up on your behalf and he's going to say, look at my servant Luke. Oh, let me tell you about him. No one's greater than him. How do I know he's going to say that? Well, because he said it about John, and then what else did he say? He said, but even the least in the kingdom of God is going to be greater than John. What does that mean? John didn't get to see the the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of us on this side of the cross have gotten to see it. 
We've gotten to see more of the gospel than John. And so you're going to stand there with all of your brokenness, with all of your sin and all of that back knowledge, and Jesus is going to speak unthinkable kindness about you despite all your doubt. Oh, that's the, that's the beauty of the gospel. And we sit on this side of it, and we get into our seasons of doubt, and somewhere inside of us, we start asking these really like kind of difficult questions that we're afraid to even utter out loud. Like, does this mean that I'm not saved? Does this mean that I've never trusted in Jesus? Is this somehow gonna make it so that when I stand before the Lord, I get cast out of his presence? And we need the reminder that when you stand before the Lord, it was never the size or the strength of your faith that was going to save you. It was the grip of God's grace that was going to save you. And your doubt's not strong enough to wiggle yourself out of Jesus's hand. And so you're gonna stand there and you're gonna be covered by the righteousness of Jesus. And the Father is gonna look at you and see Christ's righteousness. And he's gonna speak unthinkably kind things about you. Oh, I mean, balm for a weary soul. That's the heart of Jesus toward his people. Even his doubting people. Because doubt doesn't equal disbelief. And it was never the size or the strength of my faith that was going to save me. It was always the power of God's grace. Now, Jesus has something else to say in this passage, and he has it to say to the Pharisees. So he says all that about John and the people that were there, including the tax collectors, which we're supposed to understand means the worst of the sinners. They heard this and acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. Verse 30, but since the Pharisees and the experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. Those are strong words in Scripture. And so Jesus looks at that group and he says, to what then should I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine. And you said, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's that all about? Jesus is offering a rebuke and a warning because doubt doesn't equal disbelief, but disbelief equals disbelief. And that comes with consequences. So Jesus gives this sort of illustration about kids playing in a marketplace and they're playing a a flute and a happy song, but there's this group that doesn't dance. So they switch the song and they turn it to a lament that they're singing, but this group doesn't weep or doesn't mourn. And then Jesus just turns that right to the Pharisees. Look, John the Baptist came and it was all fire and brimstone. He wasn't eating bread or drinking wine. He was preaching that you needed to repent and turn from your sins. And you said to yourselves, this guy is too harsh. Well, now I've come and I come eating and drinking because the bride and the groom are together. And when the bride and the groom are together, we celebrate. And you look at me and you say, Oh, he's a glutton and a drunkard. I'm too soft for you. It doesn't matter how the message was presented. You won't believe. What am I to do with you? John, too harsh and people wouldn't believe. Jesus, too soft and they won't believe. Jesus says you refuse to believe no matter how the message is presented. J.C. Ryle, who was a 
pastor in the 1800s. He's got an incredible commentary on the Gospel of Luke that's just free online. You can Google J.C. Ryle commentary on Luke and read the whole thing verse by verse. It's absolutely incredible. He says this about this section. That every man has the power to ruin himself forever in hell is a great foundational truth in all of Scripture, a truth which ought to be continually before our minds. Impotent and weak as we all are for everything that is good, we are naturally potent for that which is evil. By continued unbelief, by persevering in the love and practice of sin, by pride, self-will, and determined love of the world, we may bring upon ourselves everlasting destruction. And if this takes place, we shall find that we have no one to blame but ourselves. So we see in this passage, what we learn about Jesus is that when Jesus' people have doubt and they go to him, he meets them with kindness and compassion. But when those who disbelieve turn from Jesus in their disbelief, there's not going to be kindness and compassion available for them. They're going to experience the just and holy, righteous consequences of their sin. They will find out that they missed out on the kindness and the compassion and the grace of Christ. I want to end with this final picture, this final demonstration. John the Baptist is not the gospel account's most famous doubter. That goes to Thomas, Jesus' disciple. Jesus is crucified, he resurrects, and some of the disciples, some of the apostles, see Jesus, and they go back and they tell Thomas about it. And in John chapter 20, starting in verse 24, it says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the marks of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, a week, imagine the length of that week for Thomas specifically. He saw Jesus crucified. He, he gave up everything to follow this man and he saw that man killed on a cross, placed in a tomb. And the circumstances of that are so heavy and so difficult that it's caused him to doubt the truth of who Jesus is. And some of his friends came to him and said, no, we've seen him alive. And Thomas said, unless I put my finger into the nail-built hole in his hand, Unless I'm able to touch his side, I don't believe it. A week passes. And Thomas was with the disciples. And even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus, in all of his compassion, moves toward Thomas in Thomas's doubt. Thomas goes toward Jesus, puts his finger in the hole in Jesus's hand, right? And you get this reminder of the crucifixion on one side, that there's the compassion of Jesus stretched out on a cross, bearing my sin, and yet he also gets the reminder there in front of him of the resurrection of Jesus, that there is the power of Jesus overcoming sin. And all of that slams together in the middle of Thomas's doubt 
because Jesus was kind and compassionate to move toward Thomas and Thomas moved toward Jesus. He will persistently pursue you, ever patient, ever gracious, ever kind, even in your darkest moments of doubt. And if we can learn by instinct, then in our darkest moments of doubt, we will go toward him in his pursuit of us. When you find yourself doubting Jesus, go to Jesus and he will always be there. Reminding us us of his faithfulness in the past, acting in kindness and compassion toward us in the present, reaffirming the truth of who he has always eternally been and carrying us home in the very grip of his grace. And when you stand before him at the end of all things, despite all of your doubt and all of your sin, it won't be the strength of your faith that saves you, it will be the grip of his grace. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the power of what Jesus has done on our behalf and that is the compassion of God toward his people even when they doubt. Amen? Amen. That's good news, yeah? Yeah, let's stand up and sing together.